doesn't matter what it looks like. Clickbait. It doesn't matter what Probably gonna cut the first 10 minutes out anyway. So, welcome, Maxime. Uh, yeah, can you pour me some coffee? Yeah, sure. That's, that's the first thing. <laughs> that's, we do, uh, yeah, that's a good start. I'm going to do the formal introduction. Have you penned uh, down anything? You're no. Oh, no, okay. I, have, I have not. So, we, uh, but we are informal, right? Or you no, but we are mixed between formal and yes, informal. Yes. Yeah, but we can still say some things. So, we have maybe we can start also to, to talk about why we are starting this podcast, right? Yes. Um, so, why did we begin? I came here, I, I remember I came here, I talked to Sophie and some others, and I said, oh, maybe we should make a podcast. And then she was like, well, Ikea, she already talked about this. Yeah, yeah. So you were already thinking about it. Yes, yes. Yeah. I was thinking about it because uh, I realized that many times, like we are a, a thriving team of uh, intellect, intellectuals. <laughs> <laughs> Academics. <laughs> Academics. <laughs> of, of I mean, uh, you, can, you can laugh at the word, humans. but it's, it's <laughs> humans. <laughs> yeah. um, think. of hardworking humans that. from different disciplines that um, rarely get to talk outside the formal um, frames of conferences, workshops, seminars, and most of them, uh, like we are thrown a topic and we're supposed to discuss the topic, but in reality, most of us have different expectations and different uh, definitions of uh, the terms that we use and this came up uh, many times when uh, me and some other colleagues were trying to uh, come up with topics for a conference or um, a workshop and we couldn't really understand what each other was saying mm -hmm. so uh, this interdisciplinarity thing that's becoming a trend it should be more than a trend and it should allow for dialogue where we don't really care what's the exact definition that your discipline says you're supposed to have in mind but we do care about communicating that definition we do care about uh, communicating perspectives yeah and maybe also thinking together right like talking and then thinking this through rather than just putting it out there like putting your definition out there and your thoughts and yeah. I disagree I agree I mean, we had this reading group just now, and it was also a bit like, I was also guilty, but we, it was, people were a bit shouting, not really, but it was good discussion, but it was not really thinking together. That was not really what happened. So I... Yeah, but I mean, it doesn't have to be. No, you can so that's I think that's disagreement good. is very valuable. I yeah. mean, it's the, what, like, if, if everyone already agrees with each other, what, what are we still doing here? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the definitions part is very important, because as someone with a background in philosophy that's basically all I do it's like okay so you have this de definition I'm gonna say it's wrong and I have these reasons why it's wrong yeah. uh, and I'm also gonna say like it's very difficult to, to come up with a different definition so I'm just gonna leave that open for now and that's uh, that's sort of the comfortable position you have as a philosopher sometimes that you can mm -hmm. just say like yeah the definition is just difficult I, I can't do anything about it it's just how it is that's how concepts work I'm sorry about it yeah yeah yeah, shall we get into to our concepts for, for today? Sure, 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 yeah. Who are you, by the way? I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's who are you, by the way? What are you doing here? Yeah, what do you think? <laughs> now you ask, who am I? <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing here? What is this place? Oh, no, don't start with a who am I, he's a philosopher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 
<laughs> well, I mean, all I know is that, that I, I think, therefore I am. So <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> I've heard that too many times. Uh, it's going to change it to I drink, therefore I am. So anyway, um, is this the time for an introduction then? Yes. yes. Okay. So oh. my name is Maxim. I'm from the Netherlands. I've uh, basically just arrived here at uh, University of Aberdeen, just started my PhD about two months ago. Um, I have a background in, well, a dual background actually, in political philosophy and in human geography, specializing in, in conflicts and geopolitics. And um, currently I'm researching civil disobedience, broadly speaking. Um, I mean, I can say more about it, but it's just gonna, that's what we're going to do today. Yeah. That's so, how about you? What are you going? What are oh. you doing today, Jörg? <laughs> what I'm doing today? Uh, no, I only. Who read are you? I, I don't know exactly, but I do know that I was today in the office, and I read some articles that Maxim sent me from Al Jazeera on something akin to maybe civil disobedience. I don't know. Let's call it, talk about that. But you want to hear more about who I am as a person? As a person, I'm, of course. I'm, yeah. I'm very I'm kind. <laughs> As a human. <laughs> As a transcendental uh, I, subject. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm a citizen. Yeah, like I don't. Yeah, of what I state? Vote. Sometimes I vote. Sometimes I too tired to vote. I think that's I a very poor back. excuse. As a democrat, <laughs> I object to that. <laughs> so and I do some research, but today it's about you. So I won't go into my research and stuff like that. I do a bit of philosophy as well. Yeah, but I mean, but he doesn't like to brag about. It. I don't no. like to brag about it. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, it's uh, but it's just useful to have like who who are these people I'm hearing talk. Yeah, sure. But um, yeah, sure. So yeah. so yeah. So do you want something? I, I actually also uh, my master was in cultural analysis. So I, I'm not really a philosopher, but I'm doing now a philosophy PhD. So that's also a bit more background for me there. Yeah. So and you have experience with philosophy. Yeah, I w always wanted to be a philosopher. And now I can you live are. out my dream. Yeah. So living the dream. Living the dream. Yeah. Well, I said I'm a literary critic. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> did we record it already? Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we're just going to have to cut a lot out of this. Can, yeah, this is a teaser, teaser for our listeners. Yeah, the provocative title of Civil Disobedience and the Joker. You know, it's it's trending right now, and I'm yeah. thinking. We should do that. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> that we were not, you, you didn't see it. I, I still haven't seen the Joker, so oh. that, that's uh, <laughs> it doesn't that's matter for the, difficulty there. For the clickbait, it doesn't matter. For the um, <laughs> yeah, we can just sort of like uh, put like the Joker. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just here, here and there. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Maybe we could tell our listeners that maybe in the second part, at the end, we'll get to this. Yeah, like, like maybe it's a cliffhanger or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, Talking about uh, the, the Greek example uh, afterwards. Oh, so yes, I will, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I will give the, the, the public what they yeah. So that's that's not about yeah. But let's yeah. start yeah. setting the the ground. Yeah, so I so I so I first emerged in the 1970s, late 60s, very clearly inspired by, by real-world events, of course, the civil rights movements in the US. Mm. So early work on, on civil disobedience was also very much done in this uh, US-based context. So as um, there, are, there are a lot of different definitions and, and sort of requirements uh, out there, and we get to some of those. 
But as a sort of basic understanding, I think it's good to know that civil disobedience is an act that breaks the law with the intent of bringing about some political change. Mm -hmm. so, so maybe we should directly go into some concrete examples. Like my the first thing that pops up in my mind was the Extinction Rebellion. Yeah. And then, I mean, do you think that's the case of... I th I, yeah, uh, at least on the face of it, I, w I would say so. And I think at this point it's useful to also uh, distinguish between, because that's what, what it's also about, between direct and indirect civil disobedience. So direct um, civil disobedience is when you break a certain law in opposition to that law itself. So in the context of civil rights movement, for example, you had the, the lunch council sittings, segregated diners in the US, black activists who sit at the white counter, so to speak, clearly in objection to those uh, segregation laws. In, in states like Alabama. Then you have indirect civil disobedience, which breaks other kinds of laws, and they can be of various kinds, in opposition to a different policy set of laws, government, whatever. Um, and there, the function of breaking laws is really uh, mostly to, to sort of dramatize and, and draw more attention to what yeah. you're doing. So to go back to the Extinction Rebellion, what's really I think important to, to note is that in Amsterdam, for example, protesters uh, uh, glued themselves to cars, and in London as well, and in several other places, of, of course, as well, uh, glued themselves to cars, uh, barricaded roads. Now, of course, I think it's safe to assume that these, these protesters do not necessarily oppose the existence of traffic laws, but they use like blockading intersections, blockading roads, as a sort of tool to, to draw more attention to the very fact that they're there. So in that sense, it's uh, I guess it can be qualified as a case of civil disobedience on a very sort of minimal definition. So there are various accounts out there which have pretty high requirements for, like, mm. for example, the type of, type of things you can address by breaking laws legitimately. So John Rawls is... is, is um, You've been working on this the last week. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, no, uh, no, John Rawls is one of the we, most famous examples, and he's, uh, uh, he, he also sort of puts forward one of the most... Yeah, I'm just going to put it... That one of the most restrictive accounts, and essentially to, to, to kind of grasp this is... It's sort of necessary to have a basic understanding of Rawls' general theory of justice, and I guess we're not going to go into that, really. But suffice it to say that uh, Rawls has this sort of theory where he tries to build a stable, just society, uh, given the fact that there are people with many different opinions, ideas, comprehensive ideas about the good life, uh, and so on. Um, so how do you kind of bind these people together in a way that they still cooperate? And at the basis of this, Rawls thinks there are, uh, or there should be, two principles of justice. And so Rawls subsequently limits um, civil disobedience to injustices that directly damage those principles of justice. So, so something climate. like uh, climate change, for example, would definitely not be included in that. Okay. So why not? Because... Because, because it's not... So the, these principles of justice that Rawls uh, uh, posits, 
basically there are sort of three levels in, in rules at which you can measure justice. So you have the basic principles of justice. Yeah. On the basis of that, you construct institutions, a legal system, mm -hmm. a system that regulates how elections are arranged and so on. And those, again, are on the third level governed by specific rules and, and particular laws, for example. Mm -hmm. And our roles would say that if a society is ordered like that, that's what he would call a well-ordered society, that at that point, only uh, injustices that target directly the underlying, so sort of the, the foundations of the system, so these principles of justice, yeah. only then is uh, could civil disobedience be, I, I, be justified. Now I understand something about the climate movement, maybe also Extinction Rebellion, because some of them will be kind of talking about climate justice, right? Yeah. So they will be bringing these things together. They will say, well, there's climate change and it affects us, but it will also affect us unequally. Yeah, I think that's actually a very, very good suggestion, because in that, in that case, then you could frame it as, so, so one of these principles of justice states that, that can be addressed states that socio-economic inequalities should be first attached to uh, positions open to all in principle. Now, if you maintain the point that the effects of climate change are, are distributed very unequally, which in general, if you, if you take a global perspective, means that many of the least well-off people on Earth will yeah, be targeted uh, much more directly by the effects of, of climate change. You can think of what's happened quite often over the, over the past decades, uh, like famines in, in uh, areas of Africa that are not used to the, uh, the amount of droughts that they've had. Some of the Polynesian islands that are, are prone to sinking and that at the same time don't have the economic means like a country like the Netherlands does to defend themselves against rising sea levels, for example. So it is distributed very unequally. So in that sense, you could make that point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was thinking of uh, environmental imperialism, which which means basically that you're not you don't live in a bad environment because you're poor, but that you are poor exactly because you live in a very bad environment, and that's how a lot of workers in the Latin American countries um, sacrifice their health in order to you know gain their uh, their wages, their yeah, daily yeah. wages. So they work in uh, sugarcane plantations yeah. that, uh, you know, they, they like yeah. after five or eight years in the plantation, they die from kidney failure. So th this is a way that they don't have the means to seek help or abandon their job, find something else, you know, because they are kept in this basic level of poverty. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I was wondering, uh, if, if civil disobedience is a modern concept, obviously people used to disobey the state historically, but is it a concept that is modern and perhaps we cannot apply it for uh, uh, insurrections of the past? Well, as a sort of, I think you could say that the concept is modern, but the activity is not. So as a sort of unified concept, so that various people talking about the same thing when they, they uh, use these words, civil disobedience, that's a fairly recent thing. However, of course, civil disobedience is not, like, disobeying laws to get something done politically is, is not necessarily new. But what you have to sort of, I guess, bear in mind is that it's it's 
more difficult to, I guess, position in, for example, a feudalist or a, a monarchist framework. Because it also, like, so, so theories of civil disobedience, philosophically, are very much intertwined with theories of, of political obligation and authority mm. and uh, constitutionalism. So it's in, in, in a basic sense, you can ask the question, why do we have to obey laws? And I guess like intuitively, most people have a very good idea, like, of course I should obey laws. Like, of course, I will not drive twice the speed limits in a school zone. But on a more sort of theoretical level, it's worth thinking about, like, where does that sort of general authority of a legal system that we uh, intuitively would consider it to have, where does that come from? And then you can have, for example, you can have the, the idea that uh, a sort of democratic point of view in a very basic sense is that these laws were, or the, this legal, general legal system is authorized by a people to, to apply back to itself, essentially. And then the question is, okay, so then, then generally you have this framework of, of legitimacy, and then when is, is something grave enough that the legitimacy is, is broken and on, under what conditions can you uh, disobey these, these laws that you would normally have to obey? And again, so in rules uh, that, that, that would be uh, breaches of those principles of justice, but there are many authors who are, who are much more permissive in, in, in that sense. So I think also just for today is, is useful to keep talking about civil disobedience in a very broad sense and just Assume for the time being that any breach of laws for political goals qualifies yeah. in a basic sense of civil disobedience, and then we can say. Yeah. Um, so there, there is another thing that, that we should then address, which is uh, the difference, if there is a difference, between civil disobedience and revolution. So in many authors, uh, especially in the sort of classic uh, liberal uh, US based debates, um, they would very much want to distinguish civil disobedience from revolution. Uh, for one, because a requirement, for example in Rawls, but also in others like Dworkin, uh, Joseph Raz, would be that a civil disobedient would object to particular laws, particular policies or something, but generally affirm the legitimacy of the general system. Yeah. So you could say that I, let, let's say, uh, the Extinction Rebellion uh, protesters, for example, uh, in that sort of idea, they would then have to affirm that the in Amsterdam, for example, the general political system of the Netherlands, the legal system based on rule of law, based on representative democracy, is legitimate and that they are committed to its persistence, but they just object to, in this case, inaction on climate change. Now, whether that's true or not is, of course, I mean, we can, we can doubt that. And I would... I would personally object to, to sort of radically distinguishing oh, revolution yeah. from uh, civil disobedience. Yeah. Um, but I would rather put them on a sort of, on a line mm. that where revolution can be a result of civil disobedience uh, and is a sort of yeah. the, the most radical form of civil disobedience, perhaps. Although there are, of course, other qualifications that revolutions need not meet to... Um, for example, I would, at, at sort of face value find it doubtful whether the Russian Revolution would qualify as civil disobedience because it was for a large part an orchestrated attempt by a number of, of leaders.
to uh, topple the Tsarist system, which of course they had very good reasons to, and whether what that resulted in was their was really according to their their objectives or not. What it resulted in was another dictatorship with those revolutionary leaders as as yeah. uh, dictators. So there it would. So what I'm also trying to do is reaffirm that the thing that essentially civil disobedience needs to have a, a democratic element to yeah, it. That's so, that. so and then I think yes. Yeah, go on, go on. Now I think it's it's worth going to to the case of Lebanon and the the, the protests in the recent weeks. And of course, like, is it is it is it a revolution or not? Like, rev the word revolution gets thrown around a lot. But so far, what's essentially happening is it's a completely leaderless uh, uh, protest movement. There was one uh, opinion article on Al Jazeera. I don't remember the name of the author, but he called he was Lebanese and he called it an open mic revolution. Yeah. Also, because uh, most uh, TV channels in 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 Lebanon apart from those explicitly affiliated with the regime, or at least thought to be so, would just go on the streets and kind of like, whoever came up to the microphone would get to speak. So it was, and this was broadcast live, uh, usually. So that gives, gives it a much more horizontal structure. So what I, what I find particularly interesting is now, but now we're going to, now I'm just going to freely associate. Oh, no, 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 let, let, let me, I, so we have a couple of, I, I found this really interesting, like we have a couple of, terms on the table now, yeah. like civil disobedience and then the revolution and disagreements about can civil disobedience also amount to revolution? And then you said maybe it can, but but then there's another term of qualification that's democracy, right? That's democracy. Yeah. I even saw an article which said is there an Arabic 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 Spring 2.0 happening now? Okay. But the point is, that is it a revolution or is it civil disobedience? And is it democratic? It's also very important. Like, ah, there's open mic democracy and there are yeah. no leaders. Like, there can be various things going on. Like, Lebanon right now is, is as far as I know, a very much unplanned uh, event. Whereas, for example, the Russian Revolution was much more planned and orchestrated in advance by figures like Lenin, Trotsky, mm. Stalin and so on. Which already, like, they needed to get a, a bunch of people with them, of course, but it it does reduce its its democratic qualities, I think. Whereas the more much more seemingly spontaneous nature of events in in in, in Tunisia back in two thousand eleven and in Egypt, in in Lebanon today, you could even name Ukraine in two thousand fourteen, and other events, of course, have a much more democratic nature to it. But what in, in those cases protesters are often calling for is, is overthrowing or replacing a, a political system whose legitimacy they clearly do not or do no longer recognize. Yeah. So then at some point you get to the point where you might credibly speak of revolution. But it gets very sort of difficult there because it's sort of things like when, when is this a revolution, when is it not? And there's always a yeah. large grey area where it's like it's not really clear. I mean, I can also imagine that the re real revolution would mean a another system of government or so another uh, other kinds of institutions, and that's a whole different test than just going to a square and speaking to an open mm -hmm. mic, which is still addressing yeah. the powers that that be. Maxim tapped in a in a very prolific area for a historian. Is this a rebellion? Is this a revolution? Mm -hmm. What's the difference? 
Uh, we could talk about it and not reach a conclusion. Mm, never. Yeah. I was also thinking that, you know, most of the revolutions that we have heard about, uh, the French Revolution, the English Revolution, they were all orchestrated by people who, you know, they had some political power. Mm -hmm. They had, uh, they had a good meal to eat. You know, I mean, I think the first, I, I heard a podcast that said the first real revolution was the Haitian revolution because that's when the people mm. really, well, it was yeah. a radical thing. But I was thinking about the part of the civil, okay? So be, you can make an act of disobedience, but do you count as a civil, as a civic subject? And I think this is where it matters if we make this, if we make this discussion, who, who is a civil, civic subject? Yeah, so that, I mean, so the civil, that's, that's a, good, a good point actually, because there are a number of ideas about what the civil in civil disobedience is taken to mean. I guess as a sort of a very broad categorization, you can divide it into two different types. One would say, would take the, the, the civil very literally and, and connect it to some sort of idea of civility politeness, so that would immediately rule out the use of violence, for example. Others see the civil as more like civic, like you said, um, so basically uh, something that's of citizens, of the public sphere, of um, the civil sphere, something like this. Then of course the, the question, the next question is who, who can count as a citizen? So you had in, in, in Amsterdam a couple of years ago, and uh, still ongoing actually, you had the, the uh, a protest group we are here. So this is a group of refugees whose asylum applications have been rejected and most of them are from a variety of countries around the world and they tend to be unable to go back to their, their countries of origin uh, even though Dutch law would require them to. Um, so they're sort of stuck in a, in a legal limbo because they cannot legally acquire housing, they cannot legally work to support themselves they are legally not in the Netherlands, yet they are there. And so, so they um, have organized a number of protest actions, quarters a number of unoccupied buildings to, I think, one, give visibility to the, to the fact that there is clearly something wrong with these uh, asylum laws. And two, also to object to the fact that, like, look, we are in this situation where we have basically no civic existence in the place where we physically are and i think that's a very interesting because of course this doesn't always happen the, the very interesting thing is that these are people who according to this sort of formal system have no civic existence no political existence in the place where they are they physically are but they claim that civic existence for themselves so they claim the space where they can actually object to something even though they have no sort of qualifications to, to do so. But of course there are uh, historically and, and actually many instances where uh, people are denied the space to, to have a political identity, a civic existence, and for a variety of reasons do not manage to claim that space for themselves. Is that something that civil disobedience theory or philosophy is preoccupied with, with, with this problem it, or is it like something that is a bit nagging that it doesn't really fit in or is it which so 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 you have this, this situation where you have some persons on the territory mm -hmm. who are not civic 
who have no formal citizenship, like yeah. the example you had. Is this a problem for civil disobedience theory? Or is this rather like the substance, that the problems that the theory has to deal with? Well, it doesn't have to be a problem. Um, in many, it is. Because, I mean, many of the, the sort of classic liberal theory of civil disobedience as an unspoken assumption has the idea that you have a perfectly circumscribed state with its citizenry yeah. where everyone is a citizen, everyone wants to be a citizen, everyone is very happy with that. Yeah. Which is, of course, not how reality works, no, usually. That's, that's what I meant. So, so. so this is, there is a strong tension there, and there are more recent contributions which, which are very much aware of that, and who actually use these sorts of cases. Yeah. There have been various... Uh, I think in, in Paris uh, there was a, an occupation of a church by Saint-Papier, yeah. 13 or something, a couple of years back, um, which has been used as a case study of civil disobedience, exactly. I guess these kinds of cases are extra interesting, yeah. because what I talked about earlier is, is this idea about the, how, how political authority, the authority of a legal system is generated, and the sort of basic structure of how that happens is very easy, in, easy to see in, in sort of clearly circumscribed states with a citizenry with sort of no surplus of people who are not citizens. Because then it's just like these, let's say, one million people authorize these laws, they apply to themselves, and a story, very easy. Now, that's not how reality works. So now you have, for example, this, this bunch of uh, people who are... And of course, you have, have this in various to various degrees. Like, if I go on holiday to Italy, I have had no say of Italian laws, but most people would find it fairly unproblematic that I still have to obey Italian laws. So, like, for tourists, this is, uh, applies as well, but it's generally viewed as unproblematic. But then you go to, for example, these people who were involved in the, in the We Are Here protests in Amsterdam, who basically have no choice also to, to be anywhere else than Amsterdam. So then it's also the question, like, like where does that authority originate for them? It originates in class. Because if you're a tourist, it means you have the basic, I mean... It means you have some means to allow you to travel for leisure. Yeah. And, you know, you're an immigrant. It's a very different thing. Yeah. Then we have to go to a break, I think. Yeah. yeah. We have yeah. to thank our sponsors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 We don't yeah. have any sponsors, but let's thank we, them. Uh, <laughs> it's a very nice mug. From yeah. The yeah. We, maybe we, we can thank them. We can use it a lot. Thank yeah. you, University. Yeah. Thank, thank you, University. Yes, <laughs> yes. Maybe we can thank uh, Trevor. Trevor, sure. Sure. Always. <laughs> Trevor. <laughs> Sure, that's but also but he said we should stay off politics, so I don't know how we're, how we're going to manage that. Uh, no, we're not, because, because there's too, there are too many 